Again, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Once you arrive there, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, to, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, like Ty said, I want to welcome you. Thank you so much for making us a part of your weekend, especially if it's your first time here. We're glad that you're here uh, and that you joined us. Hopefully someone has already grabbed you and shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do. Uh, we would love for you to get connected here. There should be a connect card in the seat back in front of you, and you can just let us know that you're here, give you some more information about what we're doing here at Providence. Uh, so like Ty said, we're working through a sermon series uh, in the month of August on the church. And we've been kind of focusing in these five weeks on just a few uh, major high points of the doctrine of the church. So what is the church? How does it function? Why does it matter? How, how do we interreact, interrelate one with another? What are some misconceptions? What should we believe that the Bible says about church and church membership? And this morning, we're gonna tackle part two of what it means to be a member. Uh, last week, I made the case that uh, I believe that you know, membership is a biblical thing and then what does membership look like? It's, it's really belonging, belonging to a covenant community together uh, and then kind of laid out five good reasons why uh, the Bible tells us we should commit one to another as members of the uh, body of Christ universally. Why should we commit locally to a local expression? Uh, because when we come to know Jesus, we, we come to know Christ and we're, we enter into the universal body of Christ or the global body of Christ but that there's an importance about what, how the local body is expressed, that we commit to a, to a local group of believers. And so this week, I want to talk a little bit about the role of members. You know, what, what is it, once we've covenanted to do life together, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? And the reason that I use the word doing is because I think one of the biggest misconceptions of church membership is that the role of a member after they uh, join in membership to a church is really just to be a passive attendee. Uh, rather than an active contributor to the health of the body. 
And then maybe a subset of, uh, of that, so if that's the biggest misconception, I would say a subset of that is that, or you know that you're supposed to be a contributor, but that ultimately that doing comes from this sense of guilt or, or religious uh, uh, expectation. I think that's a huge misconception too, because that can get exhausting, trying to, to uh, earn your keep into a covenant community that you didn't earn your way into in the first place. Does this make sense? And so I want to kind of talk a little bit about those. What does the Bible say about how we're supposed to engage? Uh, and this idea is really uh, underscored in church history with the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was, you know, Martin Luther, we all learned about it in school, right? He got the 95 Thesis, he nails this uh, document to the door and, of the Catholic Church and says, here's all the areas and the issues that and I see they're wrong with the church at the time. And, and one of the biggest issues that Luther had, although there were many, is he believed that the, the Catholic Church had uh, elevated the role of priest to become the mediator between God and man. That ultimately there was, uh, in the Catholic Church, this, this guy who was responsible for mediating, more like the Old Covenant, mediating the presence of God to us. And that we were to confess to him, and that when he, we confessed to him, then he would talk to God and then come back. And, and basically they were responsible for uh, doing way more than what he believed Luther, the New Testament, actually called for church leaders to be responsible for. He had a, a title called the priesthood of the saints. So Martin Luther believed that ultimately the, 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 the Bible teaches that members or the people of God are a priesthood in and of themselves. That not like the old covenant where priest mediated between God and man and then priest ministered from God to man. In the New Testament, uh, Martin Luther believed that believers were priests who were not only able to commune with God through the mediator Christ Jesus, but that also they could minister to one another from God so God would minister to us through us. Does this make sense? And the priesthood of the saints was a major, major issue with Martin Luther. And I would say that the Bible backs Luther up on this. That the Bible teaches us that when Jesus died on the cross, there's this moment in uh, Jerusalem where the temple veil, which represents this uh, disconnect between God and man was torn in two. And now that we had access to God again because of the blood of Jesus, that now every believer in Christ can go directly through the mediator, Christ Jesus, to God and have communion with him. And in so doing, the, re the response to that is that God then fills us with his spirit and we can minister one to another. And that this priesthood of the saints is actually essential to what it means to be the church. And so what we're going to talk through is Ephesians chapter four. What does Paul say after he lays out his theological treatise in Ephesians chapter one through three, what does Paul say the church should look like and how we should interact and act one with another? But before we do that, if you'll bow your heads with me, I'd love to pray and just ask the spirit to, to lead and to guide us. Father, we're, we're so grateful that we can rely on your word, that you are true. We believe and trust in your presence with us, not in our best efforts, not in our best efforts to earn our keep, God, because it wasn't our best efforts that saved us, and we so we thank you, God, for that. And so, Lord, would you bring a peace to us? Would you bring a relaxation to our hearts and our minds that we don't have to try and be perfect because, Jesus, you are the perfect sacrifice? And instead, God, I ask that that, that release of grace would allow us to hear your word and to receive your word and to be comforted where we need to be comforted, challenged where we need to be challenged, encouraged where we need to be encouraged, rebuked where we need to be rebuked. God, and in that we would see you as father and not as merely judge or master. 
And so, Father, would you speak to us now by the power of your spirit, encourage us, bring life to us. We need your help. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's start with point number one. So what do members look like on the ground according to Paul? Well, point number one, members strive for unity through humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. Members strive for unity through humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. So what you see in Ephesians is really a model for how Paul writes, I would say, 90% of the time in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is Paul writing down his theological understanding of who God is, what God has done, and who we are in light of that. That's usually what Paul does. For the first half of his letters, he'll lay down theological truth. Then in Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6, Paul will then write through, what should we then do in light of that? And those are never reversed. Paul never says what, what we need to do in order for these things to be true. He'll always say, these things are true. What should we then do in light of that? The theological term for this is the indicative always comes before the imperative, or you might say this, the truth about God always comes before the commands of God. This is why God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, comma, so therefore don't submit again to the yoke of slavery, right? You should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. All the law after God acknowledges and announces who he is and what he's done for you. I'm the Lord your God, what did I do? I brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You are my children now, and so therefore here's the law. Does this make sense? Paul does the exact same thing in his writings. So we're picking it up in chapter four after he has laid out his treatise one, two, and three. And in one, two, and three, Paul lays out kind of a, he's tracking on the story of salvation. Now when you think through the Old Testament, you need to think that there's a, there's a number of ways in which you can track the story of salvation. Here's the most common way. We were sinless and innocent in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and from that moment forward, we are battling against sin, and we're fighting a losing battle. God institutes sacrificial system, the law, all of these things, pointing ultimately to his redeeming purposes in Christ, where Jesus will live a sinless life, die a vicarious death, rise again, and then he will offer to us his sinlessness again and take upon himself our unrighteousness. So if you're tracking with the story of salvation in, that, in those terms, you might think sinless, sinful, sinless by faith. Does this make sense? That's one way, and it's the most common way. Here's another way that you might think of it, though, and this is the one that Paul kind of takes. It's the tack that he takes in Ephesians. We were whole and in shalom with God, Genesis 1 and 2. Because of sin, we are, we're broken and fragmented, divided people. And in those divided loyalties, it led us to a myriad of unhealthy, sinful behaviors. Jesus comes and he lives the whole life, not divided, not fragmented. Jesus says this regularly to the Pharisees when he tells them that he doesn't need glory from people because he gets his glory only from the Father. That's a whole way of living, right? The Pharisees got their glory from everybody else. They were very fragmented. And so their life was full of trying to please people. Jesus never had that issue. In his wholeness, he was broken on our behalf so that we could be made whole again and we're at peace with God and with one another. So if you're tracking with what Paul says in Ephesians, he says, we were whole at peace with God and with one another, Adam and Eve living together, naked and unashamed. It was the first marriage without arguments, right? And only. (laughs) And then sin enters and immediately when you go through the curses of sin, enmity with God, so no peace here, Enmity between Adam and Eve, and enmity even between the way in which Adam relates to the ground itself, the environment itself. All of this peace, or, or, un, or lack of peace and brokenness, 
And then because of Jesus' willingness to take our brokenness, we have wholeness again in Christ. Paul says it like this in Ephesians. He made peace through the blood of his cross, wholeness with God, and he made peace between one man and another, wholeness together. So if you follow that track, Paul, it makes total sense in chapter four when he would start with unity in the body or unity in the church. Why? Well, let me just go through the Old Testament quickly and talk about all of the times in the Old Testament that we see the point made that division is one of the greatest enemies of God in the Old Testament. In Proverbs, it says, six things the Lord hates, seven, the seventh is an abomination to him, and the seventh is he who sows discord among the brethren. So Solomon says, there's these seven things, these are awful, God hates them. The seventh one is at the, at the culmination of it. You would think, what's the, what's the worst possible thing? All of us probably have a ranking of sins, and you probably have a million other ideas other than what Solomon said, which is, he who sows discord among the brethren is an abomination to God. You expected me to say something else, didn't you? That's not what he says. He says, division's at the height. Or when Aaron and Miriam come, they, they oppose Moses in the book of Exodus 12 or Numbers 12, they get angry with Moses and they begin sowing discord with the children of Israel and saying, hey, didn't God speak through us too? Why are we listening to Moses? And it says God's anger is kindled against them and he gives them both leprosy. Now that seems like a really intense, like when you gossip, that's an intense reaction, isn't it? It's like maybe God has a talking to with you, you know, because you're gossiping. No, he gives you leprosy, right? It's an intense because they were divisive against Moses. Or how about David's commitment to not even touch the hem of Saul's garment, right? Like when he cuts the corner of Saul's garment off rather than kill him, he weeps over that, that moment of rebellion he feels like internally. He was so unwilling to harm Saul, why? Because he saw it as an act of division and rebellion against the kingdom. Even though he knew God had promised him the kingdom, he would not be the one to take it. It was just this intrinsic uh, repulsion that he had towards division, he wasn't gonna do it. Or in Psalm 133 where it says how sweet and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's there that the anointing rolls down like the, uh, rolls down like on the beard of Aaron and there's a commanded blessing. So throughout the whole Old Testament, there's this call of unity being important, unity being important. And you might ask, why so serious, right? Anybody? Like, why, why so serious about this? Uh, think of it this way. Satan's original temptation in the garden was an act of divisive rebellion that God took to heart. God was angry towards Satan for this, that he would sow unbelief into the hearts of Adam and Eve, and ultimately he did so by questioning whether or not God was for their good, right? It's this kind of, it's like a weird spiritual gossip that happens in the garden where, where Satan's having this conversation, and I always think through this, like God's not present, but he is present. What's happening here that God's allowing this to happen? But that's ultimately at the root of the original sin is this division, and so God finds this to be an abomination. It is destructive. It is terrible. Or like Spurgeon says, Spurgeon says this, nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. Let me say that again. Nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. Meaning that we all have this temptation to be divisive when we aren't interacting and engaging passionately trying to preserve the unity of the very thing that Jesus died for. That it's easy to be a critic, and when you're a critic inside the walls, that that can be destructive. And, the, and Paul says the church is meant to be the exact opposite. So he says, we're a people committed to the unity of one another. If one of the greatest enemies of the church is division and disunity, 
and I would say history agrees, then one of the greatest allies to the church is spirit-filled, humble, patient, gentle, loving members that are committed to each other and to the gospel. Members preserve the unity of the church. Now, what does Paul allude to to say that this unity is rooted in? Well, let's go to Ephesians 4. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, and with all, check this out, humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Then he says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, what's the theme here? One, right? Can we agree? First of all, Paul is like the master of run-ons. We were talking about that as I was sound checking here. So you're gonna gotta catch that drift. The run-on sentence is like in his repertoire. But the theme here is one, oneness. And two major categories of oneness. First, he says we have one God. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the Lord your God, the uh, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And we know that the Lord God is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why he says here that we have one Father, one Son, one Spirit, or one Lord uniquely one together and yet singularly distinct. And in that way, the church is meant to reflect God, that all of us are individuals, but that ultimately we're united and we're one like God is one in and of himself. Then the second analogy that he uses is the church itself. We're one body. And he says this, one baptism, one faith, one hope. Now let's think through this for a second. The early church creed said something like this. We even sing it sometimes. I think Brennan has sung this before during uh, communion. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. You guys ever heard that? Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is a, the early church creed, that was how they would form their people to remember what is the gospel at its essence. The gospel is like a a universe in its complexity, but in its simplicity, it's really simple. Christ lived a perfect life, died a vicarious death, rose again, and he's coming again, right? This is the idea of the gospel. So what does Paul say here? We have one gospel in that Christ has died, baptism, Christ is risen, our one faith, one hope, Christ will come again. And he uses these two things to say, this is what roots us as unified people, the truths of the gospel. One way to put this is the gospel alone is powerful enough to unify and keep the church. We can't do that on our own. The disparate group of individuals that are under the sound of my voice right now who still struggle with sin can only stay together by the gospel's power. We don't stay together. We don't stay unified on our own strength. We stay unified by the strength and help of the Holy Spirit who is alive within us to stand on the gospel. Here's a quote from Matthew Henry that I was reading in my commentary. I love this just because of what it says. He said, many slender twigs bound together become strong. He's talking about the church. Now, what I love about this is he calls you a slender twig, you know? And for me, it's like the first time I've been called slender in a long time. But I love this because it it kind of echoes what the Bible does often when it tells, like, what we're like. We're like sheep, right? We're like, just not really flattering things. We're like slender twigs. But many slender twigs, when they are bound together by the twine of the gospel, are strong together. It's the only way that we can be unified and strong is as the gospel binds us together, then we stand. So what does it mean? Here's some application. What does it mean that members strive for unity? How do we do that? Well, I would say we don't do that 
by trying to live for wholeness, but to live from wholeness. And I think those are uniquely different. That might sound really new agey. I I wanna try to help you here. Living for wholeness is us working diligently to preserve unity on our own strength, right? And trying to be humble by ourselves, trying to be gentle by ourselves, trying to be um, caring, kind, all the different peaceable moments and fruit of the spirit, right? That's us trying our, our own, our best. Living from wholeness is relying on what Christ has done and trying to be like Jesus, We strive to be like Jesus. That's a singular pursuit. Not so much that if you had a big poster board, you would list up the characteristics of Christ and say, I'm gonna try to nail these today. Can we agree that would be exhausting if you just listed up all the things that Jesus was and said, I gotta check these off? Or if you just say, I wanna generally rely on the spirit to be Christ-like and rely that he's doing that work in me. So one quote that I was reading from a book called Wholeheartedness said this, whole people see and create wholeness wherever they go. Split people see and create splits in everything and everybody. I'm going to read that again. Whole people see and create wholeness wherever they go. Split people see and create splits in everything and everybody. So what that means is that when we are, when we are living out of our fragmentation, trying to strive for wholeness, when we're living out of our brokenness and living in that way, what we'll do is most of the time you'll be, you're listening not to someone talk, but you're listening through what they're saying. You ever met somebody like this where you're talking to them, but they're not really listening to what you're saying? They're just waiting for you to shut up so that they can get their word in edgewise, right? Or like they're texting whenever you talk, or they're really not interested in what you're saying, or they're just looking for things to disagree with you on. You ever had that person? That's just frustrating, isn't it? Looking for ways to disagree, not looking for something. I always say like a skilled worshiper is someone who can listen to someone and hear them preach or, or, or hear a song, and they can... They can worship Christ in and through that in the same way that a thirsty person, if you just have a drip from the ceiling, they'll find the drip, right? (laughs) And so fragmented people tend to walk into a situation and you will watch them, the relationships that they have, they tend to be divisive. The relationships that they have, they tend to pull people away because they can't help but act out of the brokenness that they have, that they are possessing, that they're living from. But whole people that are the exact opposite. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers because when whole people walk into a room, they unite others. They bring people together. They look for the good in other people. They look to encourage other people, honor other people, outdo one another in showing honor. They're not constantly looking for what's wrong in a situation so they can highlight that so that they can make other people feel shamed, yada, yada, on and on and we go. Whole people are looking to unite And ultimately, that's what Paul calls us to be here in Ephesians chapter four. So he says, we have a solution for disagreements, hurts, sinful actions against us, discouraging words that are spoken to us, frustrating circumstances, selfish tendencies, all the things that happen in the church, Paul says we have an answer for, it's the gospel. We have Christ who has shown us how we can react and interact with those things by dying on behalf of sinners like you and me so that we can react, and these are the four things that Paul says, in humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. So let me give you these four, and then I'll go to point two. Humility. Humility looks like this. I don't always know best, and I also make sinful mistakes. Humble people give a great allowance for people to be broken because they recognize their own brokenness. The prideful man has a real problem when other people are imperfect, and it's usually because their own inner critic is trying to tell them that they need to be perfect, and so they're still fragmented, broken, and hurt. But humble people say, man, I'm broken too. You make mistakes. Listen, Christ died for us. We can move forward, right? 
Gentle people say, I'll speak the truth in love. Not just, I'll speak the truth, right? That would be ungentle. That's what some people call heart surgery with a hammer, right? <laughs> I'll just speak the truth. That's I always joke about my wife. She always has this line. Well, it's true. That's what she tells me. <laughs> well, gentleness is I'll speak the truth in love. Now, if you have, you know, love without the truth, that's heart surgery with a noodle. That's another issue. I'm saying what we need is speak the truth in love. We need both. Gentleness. Patience. Patience says this, I will not force things to work in my timeline according to my plans. Patience says, hey, things can be wrong or at least my perceived wrongs and I can let it be that way because I'm not God. Patience says, I'm no, I don't have to work this thing out in my timeline. That means with your family, that means with your group, that means with the church itself. You know what? I don't have to see this thing come to fruition on my own timeline. I can trust God. And then lastly, forbearing love is I will love against all odds and at the greatest cost. Forbearing love, I would say, is at the very heart of the gospel, is that we love and continue to love and continue to love. And Peter says, how many times should we do this? It seems like people are taking advantage. And Jesus says, 70 times 7, which doesn't mean 490 times, by the way. Some of you guys are like, I've been counting. I'm ready to, who you wait till it gets there. He's using the, the number 7 to be this infinite number of loving responses that we should give. So we don't have to try and make eternal atonement for each other's wrongs. Instead, we can forgive, forbear, be patient, walk in humility toward one another because Christ has already made atonement. And listen, unity is not merely circular. It's not unity for its own sake. Unity in the church exists to accomplish the purposes of God. I wanna read John 17, verses 17 through 21. This is called the high priestly prayer from Jesus. Listen to what he says about unity. He says, sanctify them in truth. This is Jesus praying to the Father, and he's talking about his disciples. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they might also be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That they may all be, check this out, one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen to that. Our unity, our oneness is for a glorious purpose, which is that the world would believe the gospel because of our love for each other and our unity. That's why it's so important. The church is the testimony. It's the testament to the gospel's power and faithfulness that when we live together, in humility, in patience, in gentleness, and forbearing love, the whole world says something's unique about that because people don't generally get together and they're not able to do that on their own strength. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news. Generally speaking, we don't live like that with one another. Generally speaking, we have issues. But when the church gets together and unifies and forgives, and that's only by the power of the Spirit and the saving blood of Christ. Okay, so members strive for unity. Number two, Paul says members receive Christ's gifts and give of themselves generously for the good of others. I'll read that again. Members receive Christ's gifts and give of themselves generously for the good of others. So Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse seven, he says, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, before I hop in here, here's what I'm gonna say. These next few verses, highly contested in the church, tons of different ideas about them. I'm gonna focus on the highest, like most general theme because that's really what we're talking about here that almost everybody agrees on, okay? And I'll mention a couple of the nuanced stuff, but let's not get bogged, okay? I'll, I'll try to mention them, but ultimately we'll jump back up. Here's what he says. Verse eight, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's a quote from the Old Testament. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had 
that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Okay, the theological nuance is twofold. Number one, a lot of people take that, okay, what does it mean that Jesus descended into the lower regions of the earth? So old creeds in in the uh, early church, it would say that Jesus descended into hell. Some of you have always... Heard that, read that, right? Steals the keys from death, hell, and the grave. I heard that when I was growing up, right? I always figured this like standoff. He takes the keys from the devil, drop kick, goes back into ascends into heaven. Some of you have heard that, okay? Others would say, no, Jesus didn't go into, the, into hell itself, but this is talking about Jesus' burial. It's talking about him descending into the earth itself and that it's just talking about, hey, burial, Jesus is willing to go through death and even burial and then rise again. Lots of different nuances about this. I think that's, it's a helpful uh, conversation at some level. But here's the big, big point. It's really highlighting that Jesus is so humble that he was willing to go from his throne to the lowest part of the earth. Jesus is willing to go from glory to humiliation. Jesus is willing to go from seated at the right hand of the Father to dirt itself. Jesus is willing to be the glorious King of kings, Lord of lords in heaven all the way to being debased, mocked, spit on, right? That's what Paul's highlighting here. Then he wants to talk about the reversal of these fortunes, the ascension, the glorious ascension of Jesus. And he says that when Jesus ascends, that he leads this host of captives, another uh, really nuanced position. But the idea is that he frees people and that when he frees people, can we all agree, we've been freed by Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and our faith in that, right? Amen. The nuances we'll talk about later. He frees us, and when he frees us, he gives us gifts. And that by his grace, he extends these gifts to every member of the church. Now, he's going to talk about leaders in a second, but first he just says every Christian is extended gifts according to the measure of Christ's grace. That means if you're sitting in here and you believe in Christ, that when you were born again, Christ extended gifts to you that were not just of your natural birth, but were of a supernatural origin. He wants to gift you with specific abilities, and I don't mean like uh, X-Men abilities, okay? We're going to get into this in a minute. Specific abilities for a specific purpose. Okay. Now, then he goes on to say, the reason for this is that he might fill all things. Now, he's going to use this idea of fill. The the whole idea, in a nutshell, is that God's ultimate purposes, his redemptive purposes, is that in the end, God will sit on a throne and that the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the purposes of the gifting, okay? Now, in verse 11, he's gonna say this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. Here's another nuanced one. Some people, they call that, how many of you have ever heard this? The fivefold ministry. Anybody? Okay, a couple of us. Some of us call it the fivefold ministry. And so what they'll say is they'll put that on a wheel and say, ultimately, all of us fall into that fivefold ministry category. And so all of us, you know, have been given gifts that might fall into one of those five. Others might say, no, that's not true. What he's saying here is the first three of those, apostles, prophets, and evangelists, were these authoritative figures, 
anointed by God to carry God's word, and that now really what we have is pastors and teachers, which are more just stewards of what those three said, okay? Now, here's what I'll say. Rather than going into the depths of that, I think both of those, I've, I've learned from both of them, grown from both of them. Here's the headline, though. The headline is, God gives gifts to the members in order to do gospel ministry for his glory and our good. That's the headline. So let's focus on the headline. God gives gifts to us that we might respond to his generosity by being generous. So here's a couple ideas. The work of the gospel is a community project. That's important. Number two, members should look to build one another up if that's the goal that Paul's highlighting here. Now I want you to ask this question to yourself. How much of my speech activity, things that I do, things that I say in the church actually builds people up? Just sit on that for a minute. I think that's the headline of this text. How much of my engagement as a member of the church builds up and how much of it tears down? Paul's saying that we have to be about the building up of other believers. We gotta be about the business of building each other up, not tearing each other down. We live in a world that is so adept and so skilled at tearing one another down. In fact, it's a skill we learn on the kindergarten playground, and it's one that we continue to master until Christ saves us. Some of us think the only way I can win in life is if everybody else loses. And that's a terrible and sad way to live. Paul says the exact opposite about the body of Christ, that we win when your neighbor wins. We find life when your neighbor finds life. That we actually gain honor when we honor others. This is what the argument was with the disciples when they said, which one of us is greatest? And Jesus says, the greatest among you is he who serves. In other words, when you honor other people, I'll honor you. When you feel like you're being stepped on, I will pick you up. The church is meant to be this place that we look to build each other up. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you think back on like your Christmas time when you were a kid or even Christmas time for your kids, there's usually two kinds of gifts that you can give your kids. One of them, like let's say... uh, Some of them might be more isolating gifts, like video games, right? You give them a gift, you don't see them for decades. You're like, where'd my kid go? You know, all of a sudden they have a beard. Like, that's more of an isolating gift, right? Individualistic. Then there's gifts that you give your kids that they really can't even really use or enjoy unless they engage with others. This would be like a seesaw, right? That's a terrible gift unless they have a brother, sister, or friend, okay? Can we agree? Okay, God's gifts to the church are a lot more seesaw, a lot less video game, okay? He gives us gifts in a specific way that ultimately promotes relationship and mutual edification and that denounces isolation and self-exaltation. That's how God gives gifts. Every gift given to the people of God is for the purpose of mutual edification and relationship, that ultimately we're supposed to relate with one another. And when we use these gifts generously, the body builds itself up and grows and God is glorified. So a couple of things. Number one, we usually at Providence, this is done formally and informally. Like formally, maybe some of you, the way you're using your gifts in the church is finding a place to serve. Like there's many uh, of our volunteers right now that are serving your children, loving them, praying for them. Some of you guys that are sitting in here and gals, you serve our children. I just wanna say thank you. It is a testament to this text that you do that, that you use your gifts for the sake of everyone around you. You're an encouragement to others when you do this. You might see people that uh, maybe shake your hand when they come in in the morning or say hello, or maybe somebody who's making coffee that you never see. These are people that are formally using their gifts in ways that we've designed. 
Now, having said that, that's not the only way in which the church uses their gifts. There's also things that happen informally. And I use the word informally by saying they happen without anyone even knowing that they're happening. People that are gifted in generosity give gifts that many of us never even know happen. You don't even know that they gave a major gift as a sacrifice to them and their family because they are gifted in this area and therefore they're willing to, to share that gift with the church. Others, maybe they call someone who's sick or hurting on the phone that maybe you never knew that phone call happened, but they have a gift of encouragement and they just speak life and encourage them and build them up. And what I have found is that usually, like for instance, this is just a side note, people that are gifted in encouragement, usually the enemy also uh, will utilize that gift of encouragement, or he will try and find a way to destroy that gift of encouragement. People that are gifted in encouragement typically can also be those who are very critical (laughs) or Speak death too, okay? Because that's how the enemy works. He always kind of takes the antithesis of what God has given as a gift. And so we look to combat that by actually engaging informally, or as Jesus says, we don't even let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Sometimes you just utilize your gift for the good of the body. You don't even have to announce that, right? There's many things that happen at Providence that we never even announce them. They just are amazing things that have happened in home groups where people are utilizing their gifts for the ministry of others. Uh, things get coordinated online. You know, we've had, I don't even know how many. It's gotta be in the hundreds by now. I mean, based on how many children we have. Maybe not there yet. How many meal trains have gone out? Just tons. It's really nutty how many times we have meal trains. We should have stock in the meal train site. But that happens, and it happens without us making a big announcement of that. So here's a couple guides, and then we'll close. Uh, don't stop giving sacrificially in areas that make you uncomfortable because you might think you're not gifted there. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. I think sometimes, you know, serving is sacrificial, and it doesn't necessarily feel like you're really great at it. Uh, however, I, I would encourage you to try and pray and ask God where you're uniquely gifted and you can serve the body. Also, use discretion and wisdom in building up others in love as your goal. So, you know, really look to be mindful of your speech and mindful of your uh, conversations to see, am I building others up? Uh, number three, push back the potential excuses of time um, which I think is an important commodity to give to the Lord. Make time for what's really important. So it's really easy for all of us who are young and have young kids. I don't have time to serve other people. I need to be served. Can we all just look at each other? Agreed, okay? But if everybody has that mentality, then no one serves anyone. And the body actually doesn't look like the body of Christ, looks more like just this disparate group of selfish people. But when we're able to say, you know what, I'll serve others and I'll trust God that other people will serve me, well, then it's not just you looking out for numero uno, but you hopefully have about 100 other people who are looking out for you and it works out better. Okay. And then lastly, reject hoarding and reject boasting. Hoarding would be being gifted and never sharing that gift with anyone else. And boasting is when you want to share your gift with everyone else for your own glory. Those are two pitfalls. Reject them both. I don't want to be all about my gift and all the things that I'm gifted at so that everybody can worship me. And I also don't want to be negligent of the gift that I've been given or only use it for me and for mine. Okay. Number three, and the last as Paul closes here, members are relationally engaged with one another for spiritual maturity and growth. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So lastly, we relationally engage with one another. So we strive for unity We generously use the gifts that God has gifted us for each other's building up, but we relationally engage. This is the vulnerability of being a member. It's you actually try to know and be known by others. And this is essential because only when we try to know and be known by others can we really mature into Christ-likeness. 
Because that's ultimately what spiritual maturity is, Christ-likeness. This is what the Spirit is up to in your life. If you ask me what's God up to in your life, without me having to know you, I can tell you what he's up to, making you more like Jesus. That's what he's up to. Now, he does that in a myriad of ways, and sometimes it's not the way that you and I would choose, and everybody who's struggling says amen, right? However, that is what he's up to in your life. But this text means that we grow in our individual image bearing of Christ when we grow in our collective image bearing of Christ. Here's what I mean by that. Not only is God making you look more like Jesus, but the body of Christ is the body of Christ so that we would represent Jesus to a watching world together. And those two things coming together, are uh, they are joint efforts from God, making us more like Jesus individually and together making us look more like Jesus for a watching world. When you go to the mechanic in your car, something's wrong with your car, it's usually three things, uh, one of three things. Now, I'm not a mechanic, and so some of you who are are going to be like, huh, way more than that, agreed. A um, few things, though. Number one, you get under the car, and the part that should be there to do that job is not there anymore, okay? Anybody ever had that happen? That happened with me with my oil cap being gone. They changed my oil, but they actually left the bottle of oil in there and just closed the hood on top of it. So there's no cap anymore, just a bottle of oil in my engine, right? So the part that's meant to be there isn't even present. Number two, or the part that's meant to be there is there, but it's not connected properly. So it's just like loosely apart, right? Or number three, the part isn't functioning as it's intended, and it's, de- it's faulty and therefore has to be replaced. Okay. If we use that analogy similarly to the body, number one, be present. If you're not if you're a part of the body and you're not present, that means you can't function properly. And in our millennial world, I would say, if you had to have one goal for yourself, just show up to the world that's around you. Just show up there. It matters. It makes a difference. Just show up. Number two, when the part is not connected properly, it can't function properly. So if you're just loosely connected to the body, you're probably not going to function for all that God intended you. So you might say, well, I got a lot of things going on. And I would just say to you, when, when you're loosely connected, it's very difficult for you to see the kind of spiritual maturity and the kind of life that God intends. And then lastly, uh, when the part isn't functioning the way that it was intended to, that's when we try to do things on our own strength or we try to operate outside of our own abilities or capabilities and we overextend ourselves. And I would just encourage you, hey man, are you tired? Tell someone you're tired. Don't say, I'm not tired. I never get tired. <laughs> Do you, do you ever feel like you're working left-handed in the role that you have in the church? Like, you know what, I, I'm doing this, but I'm kind of awful at it. Maybe you should just tell someone, hey, I kind of feel like this, I'm an oaf, and I'm not doing good at this. Now, I'm not telling you someone's going to come in and say, oh my gosh, you're an oaf, we'll fix that, we'll put you over here where you're not an oaf. Maybe not, maybe they'll say, you know what, you are kind of an oaf, let me work with you on that. But tell somebody about that, right? Be present, be connected. You're exhausted, you're struggling spiritually. Tell somebody about that. You would be surprised at how cared for you'll be when you let others care for you. There is not a more powerful tool for displaying the glory of God than a committed, thriving, gracious, humble, generous, patient, loving church committed to the gospel. There's just not. That's God's purposes. That's his design. That's his vision, that the church would be his outpost, missional outpost to the world. How will that happen? I want to say this, because some people have asked me, how do you guys make the gospel unignorable? I don't see a lot of mission programs. Huh? Where you, what's going on? You know, you guys feeding the poor, what are we doing? And, and here's what I'll say, like, 
we do have some programs and we're working on that and there's always going to be some stuff. And, and listen, I, I, I appreciate that because I'm like, man, uh, that's true. We probably need to be doing some stuff. However, at the very heart of what we're, what we're looking to do here at Providence is not about programs, it's about people. So programs that help people, that's fantastic. But ultimately, it's about community. The people of God, the community of God, actually living a life committed to the gospel, loving each other, forgiving one another, caring for one another, and reaching out to their neighbors is what we do to try and make the gospel unignorable because we believe that's what the Bible says the church is meant to be. We're not gonna make the gospel unignorable through programs, but through people. So does that mean we're never gonna have any service opportunities? No. Ultimately, my heart is to unleash the power of the blood-bought people, spirit-led people of God into our community. That's my, that's my hope. And I think that's what Ephesians 4 really says, that I'm supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I want to close with this quote from Spurgeon. He says this, Not for yourself, O church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for himself. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. Providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. The need is biblical doctrine, so understood and felt that it sets men on fire. And yet, the Bible is not the light of the world, it is the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible, the world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. So I want to encourage you, church, you are the light of the world, and the world reads you. Don't expect your neighbors to read the Bible. They don't read the Bible because they don't believe it, but they read you and they read us together. And so my prayer is that we would humbly, gently, patiently, and with forbearing love live together in such a way that we display the majesty of Christ. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Lord, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the guests here this morning. It is my Prayer, my God, would you now graciously extend your loving arms to us as we take of communion and as we sing to you. For the hurting this morning, God, would you minister? For the wounded, my God, would you heal? For the hurt this morning, God, would you lift up their head? For the weary, the heavy laden, would you give them rest in yourself? God, would you help us to minister to one another? And this morning, maybe linger a little longer to talk to each other, to find someone we don't know, to love on someone, to encourage someone, to pray for someone. God, would you help us to be a picture to a watching world of the gospel? And Holy Spirit, as we sing to you, we believe and we trust that you're doing that in and through us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.